God, that is our prayer this morning, that you would be our vision. God, if we do not have you, we have nothing. Your son teaches us to abide in you that we might uh, bear much fruit because apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the goal of our salvation. You are the hope of our lives and our great and eternal reward. So God, as we turn our hearts towards your word, teach us that in prayer, the goal is to meet and enjoy you forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be thinking about prayer. Next week we'll begin, kind of, our series in Judges. So we need a couple uh, uh, sermons to kind of get us ready for that book. It's a bit of a mouthful, Judges. So uh, this week we're going to be thinking about prayer. Matthew chapter 6. And just to get us thinking about it, one of the reasons I wanted to think about prayer is because when I evaluate my 2017, uh, I found, at least in my uh, year and the evaluation of that year, I found that uh, 2017 was the year that I really realized my limitations. So I realized in 2017 that uh, in many instances, no matter how many sermons are preached, no matter how many counseling sessions I have, no matter how many books I read, in all of these things, I found that I couldn't change people just by doing them on my own. Um, and I found that I couldn't even change myself in some ways. Um, and so if you'd think I'd have learned that by now, but nevertheless, I'm a slow learner. And so if 2017 was the year that I learned my limitations, what I began to pray at the beginning of 2018 is that the 2018 would be the year that I begin to pray more. There's a connection between those two ideas. And I think maybe many of you find yourself in a similar position. Maybe you have found in the previous year or in other years, you found yourself bumping up against your own limitations. And you've found that no matter how hard you try, you can't overcome a habitual sin. No matter how hard you try, you've uh, tried to read books and do other things, you still struggle in certain ways. You can't see certain things happen that you want to see happen. And I think there's a connection there between our realization of our limitations and our need to pray. Because what we learn in uh, understanding our limitations is that God is the author of all good things, not us. He is the one we go to to see true and lasting change. And so you're probably finding that there's a bit of a gap. I know I did. There's a bit of a gap between your fears, your stresses, your anxieties, and your prayer life. There's a gap there. And that gap needs to close. And what I'm hopeful for this morning is that we will begin to see our need to pray in order to close that gap. See, prayer says to politics, pop culture, and worldly powers, you are limited. Prayer says that our hope is beyond ourselves and our designs. Prayer says that our treasure is not on earth, but in heaven. Prayer says that our hope is in God. But the thing is, is, I don't feel the need to sort of teach you to pray more. My suspicion is, you know, you need to. So we're going to think about that. We're going to think about the kind of inefficiency of prayer, right? In a world of uh, ordering pizza scissors and have them show up on your doorstep in two days, right? Prayer seems really inefficient, right? But we're going to need to see that we need to pray if we're going to see true and lasting change. So we're going to see that from Matthew 6 and what we're going to find in the first half, two points this morning, how not to pray, how to pray. 
how not to pray and how to pray. So take a look there. Matthew chapter six. Look at verse one. We're going to kind of dot through here. In this first section, we're going to see how Jesus is teaching. He's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is just a, a known, well-known sermon of Jesus's. And we're just going to dot around and see how not to pray. Take a look there or, or just be religious, how not to do it. Look at verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Again, this is Jesus talking. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Note these next words. In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Drop down to verse 5. We'll come, drop down to verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Then drop down to verse 7. We'll come back to verse 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. And finally flip over, take a look there at verse 16. We'll think about those other verses in just a moment. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So we learn in these passages how not to pray. See, what we're learning here in these passages, Jesus has been warning about practicing righteousness for the purpose of being seen by others. You see that in verse 1. You'll notice again, he does the same thing in verse 5 that I read, verse 16. So Jesus is attacking a kind of religiosity that exists for itself. He's attacking a kind of religion that has our own personal rewards at the center. For those that practice religion like that, that do stuff to get stuff, Jesus says they receive their reward. God's not in it. God offers no reward for those whose faith is practiced for the purposes of personal gain. No reward. God will give you nothing. As is being referenced there, look in verse 3. If you even give to the poor in order to gain something in the world, you've received your reward. Or if you pray in such a way as to gain favor from man, you've received your reward. Or as it says again there in verse 16, if you broadcast your fasting for the purposes of being seen as more holy, you've received your reward. God is not in it. Jesus says these things are hypocritical. Look at verse 5 and verse 16. Those things are hypocritical. Hypocritical is the same way that word behind there. There is the same way we get same place we get our word actor. Actor. So you guys know, right, Sylvester Stallone is not a boxer. Right, do you know that? He's an actor. Right, he's acting like he's a boxer in Rocky Balboa, right? So therefore, though it may appear to us that Sylvester Stallone is a boxer, he does not get boxing rewards, right? He gets Hollywood rewards. He gets money. Same way. Same way. We do not get heavenly rewards if we are primarily interested in getting an earthly reward. Drop down there to verse 7. The same can be said for those who heap up empty phrases in their prayers. Empty there means void of authenticity. 
They're not coming from a place of truth down here. So just because you effectively use your these and thous rightly, just because you pray with theological precision and poetic wonder, those kinds of things, just because you do that, does not mean that in and of themselves, God will grant you what you prayed for and you receive a heavenly reward. See, God is not like those, not like that king in the Bud Light commercials, right? Where you sort of pray just right, perform just right, and he says, dilly dilly, off you go, here's your reward. It's not how he works. God is not trying to be entertained so as to give us reward. It's not what prayer is about. It's not what the Christian life is about. But we've all sort of thought that way, haven't we? Right? We can think about the people in community group, maybe a Bible study where they pray and you hear them pray and you go, man, and that dude, he must really love God. And I bet his life is going to be so blessed by God because he prays so beautifully. She prays so beautifully. And it's possible that that person's prayers were indeed real. I don't want to call suspicion every time somebody prays beautifully. All right? I'm not trying to do that. But just because they pray beautifully, just because they do that, the categorical conclusion that because they sounded good means that God hears them more and gives them some sort of reward, that is false. Jesus is exposing that lie. See, what Jesus is doing in these passages is sort of like taking us to a car show and we walk around the floor and we see this beautiful, shiny 1966 red Corvette sitting there and we look at it and say, man, that is beautiful. That is a wonderful looking car. And we see its shiny paint. We see its great leather on the inside. And then Jesus stands at the front of the hood and he motions us over there and he pops the hood and we look down into it. And what do we find? But carpet, no engine. Jesus is exposing the lie. This is actually just a decoration, the Corvette. It's not the real thing. So it is with us. Our hearts have to be inflamed with a love for God. We may appear to be on the outside looking as though we are strong and those kinds of things, but we need to have an engine on the inside if our prayers are going to be answered in the way that we want. The way that God would want, most importantly. We want the real thing, right? We want to be the real thing. That's what Jesus is teaching us. So think about that the next time that you see somebody wearing fancy religious clothing. I've thought about this so many times. There's been times uh, I've uh, been on an elevator and somebody had, you know, like a collar or some sort of religious clothing. And I've thought to myself, man, if they knew I was a pastor, maybe then I could talk to them and then they come to Jesus. Like, that's just silly thinking. Think about this the next time that you uh, see somebody's beautiful, big theological library. You see their beautiful seminary degree, Master of Divinity, sitting up on a wall. Maybe you find out that they are an author of a book, something like that. Just because those things are there, friend, does not mean that they are the real thing. God is not impressed by external religion that is hollowed out in the middle. Listen to how Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understood all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, But have not love, I gain nothing. Did you catch that last line there? You could give your body over to be burned for the purposes of God. 
But if it doesn't issue from love, you gain nothing. These religious dudes that Jesus is speaking to here, they had thought that they had gained a lot by their standing in the synagogues and street corners, crying out, oh God, how great you are. Everyone else thought that they had gained a lot as well. Look there in verse 2. Look back up in chapter 6, verse 2, and you'll see even the people are praising them for their external religion. And in each case, Jesus says, that's all you get. You've been paid in full. And I'm sure this had to shock everyone as Jesus teaches this because it went against their entire value system when it came to matters of faith. Jesus is reaching deeper and deeper to indicate what is demanded by God. He, he, wants internal, he wants internal authenticity, not external acting in and of itself. And so if that's not what he gets, he says it's as hollow as the wind. And of course, it's kind of easy to act religious and get respect from people, right? This is actually not that hard. Sort of like what I tell husbands a lot, like being romantic is actually not hard. Loving your wife, much more difficult. Being romantic, super easy, right? Buy some flowers, go to, go to a restaurant one night, romantic, easy. Loving them, taking out the trash, picking up your clothes, putting them in the, you know, hard, right? It's true. That's, that was a side, but that one was free. It was off the side. <laughs> Talk about that later. But we want, we want what is real, right? It's easy to kind of act religious, to look religious, Cut your hair a certain way, wear a kind of uniform, put a bumper sticker on a car, or better yet, memorize a couple verses, pray them in community group beautifully. Make, you know, make your Bible, kind of tear it up a little bit, make it look like it's been used a lot, you know, these kinds of things. Or maybe you tell your friends about how often you've been to church or how much you've given to the money to the church, these kinds of things. It's easy to do those things and have people think a lot of you. But friends, all that is, if that's the only reason you're doing it, All that is is superficial, self-centered, easy religion. Anybody can go put on a blue uniform, buy some rainy bands and a badge on eBay and say you're here to protect and serve. That doesn't make you a policeman. In the same way, you can't don external religion and expect it to contribute anything if it doesn't proceed from a heart that loves God and loves neighbor. And so, friends, if we're going to embrace our limitations and really learn to lean on God in prayer, then we've got to understand this critical component of prayer. Namely, we've got to understand how not to pray. We've got to understand that we don't pray in order to gain horizontally on earth. We pray first and foremost to gain vertically in heaven. And I'll get more to that in a minute. But we need to see for prayer for what it's not. Praying for the primacy of gaining on earth is hollow. It is not the way to pray. But here's the thing. I think most of you know that. I think most of you are aware of that. And that's why you don't pray. See, many of you have learned that the Lord doesn't immediately reward your prayers in the way that you wanted. And that's one of the reasons it's keeping you from praying. It doesn't seem to work. Or because you think you're so hollow, so you just don't do it. In some ways, the world that Jesus lived in was different than ours. See, public religion, public religion had value in the eyes of the world. It doesn't really hear, right? So if your boss hears you praying over your turkey sandwich in the kitchen, a beautiful prayer, he's he's not going to say, man, let's give that dude a, a promotion, right? We don't have any value. So in the same way, if your buddies found out that you fasted last week, they're not going to think more highly of you, more than likely. Some of them may. 
You know that they're going to think a little more highly of you if you dressed better, if you were funnier, faster, taller, handsomer, prettier, whatever, or maybe had some other talent. And so you put your efforts there. You want that earthly benefit, yes, but you're all too convinced of Jesus's point here. You're convinced that by praying publicly. You're going to gain very little socially. And that's why you don't pray, at least one reason it doesn't seem to have an efficient payoff and you doubt even your own intentions. And so you just don't do it or you don't do it much. And so instead of praying, you do the kinds of things that others would want you to do so as to get that thing that you want. So your problem is not so much praying as a way of getting. Your problem is it doesn't seem to have the value for what you want for the very reason that Jesus is teaching us right here. It has no immediate earthly reward. It's a delayed reward, and we don't want delayed rewards, right? We want what we want now. So we read this and say something like this to ourselves, that at least those religious leaders got something for their public religiosity. I don't seem to get much by my praying. And as to heavenly rewards, who needs those when I need a job or a husband? So for some of you, your problem is not praying for the wrong reasons. Your problem is praying at all. Because there doesn't seem to be some quick, eternal or quick earthly reward. And so going into a prayer closet, praying to God secretly, doesn't seem to answer your most fundamental wants or needs. And so some of you just skip praying in favor of doing things on your own in hopes of kind of turning things out on your own. Well, obviously, we don't pray. One way to pray is not by praise. One way to pray is not to pray at all, right? We, we know that that's not the way. If we're going to pray, we need to at least pray, right? And the second thing we learned is, is we don't pray in order to gain praise from man. That's just a couple ways we can think about it. If we think about closing that gap between anxieties and fears in our prayer lives, is we need to understand those two things most fundamentally. That's how we not pray. So, but how should we pray? How should we pray? So we've thought about how not to pray. Let's now think about how to pray. See, my guess is most of you want to pray, but you lack fervency in doing it. So let's take a look at how Jesus teaches us to pray, and maybe we'll be prompted to give ourselves more to prayer in 2018. Take a look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, so now here we go, teaching us how to pray. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows that you need what you need before you ask him. Now you're familiar maybe with this whole secret thing before. You can look back up in verse 4. Let your giving be in secret. Look down to verse 18. Let your fasting be done in secret. And so here, Jesus says we should pray in secret. Now, is Jesus saying that we can't pray in public at all? Well, I hope not. That would mean that we shouldn't pray in church, right? So that's not what he's after. See, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's trying to swing the pendulum the other direction. The religious establishment of the day was all about public religiosity for the end of personal reward on earth. And Jesus was trying to show that righteousness has to come from within. It's got to be real. It's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. And for it to be authentic, you're going to do it when nobody else is looking. If your faith is real, you won't need the praise of man to do it. You'll do it because you desire the praise of God. 
So when you pray in secret, you'll love God for real in public. Which, of course, is exactly what 17th century theologian John Owen said when he said, quote, what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and nothing more. So in other words, Jesus says that the measure of our faith is not by what we do when everyone is looking, but by how we are when only God is looking. Just because you're able to properly articulate the hypostatic union uh, or just because you're, you can answer a lot of questions in Bible trivia, just because you're comfortable praying in public, just because you can preach a sermon. Those things, valuable though they are, are not necessarily the best measurement of our faith, of who we actually are in terms of our maturity in Christ. The better measuring stick is who we are in private before God. Now, I want you to hear this. Don't lose sight of what I'm about to say here. If you're falling asleep, wake up. This is important. I'm about to say. We are who we are in Christ, to be clear. That's who. That's who we are. For I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that lives. Christ that lives in me. But our maturity is measured by who we are in secret. There we get a better picture of our maturity. So what you're going to find is that the people who lay themselves bare before God in private are the people that are going to be the most useful to God and God's people in public. And we would agree, right? I mean, we think about other disciplines in our life, we'd find the same to be true. And so if, you know, you may fool your boss into thinking that you work really hard at work because every time your boss comes around the corner, you toggle from Facebook control right back to the cell spreadsheet, right? But we know, we know. Boss may not know, but we know. A good employee thrives when his or her boss is not looking. Or think of it this way. Would you want a president that was only uh, sort of leading when the cameras were on them? Of course not. Who we are in private is who we really are in public, no matter what others may think. God knows the truth. And so if you're pursuing God in prayer, for instance, when no one else sees, God sees and he delivers a heavenly reward. Now, to be clear, rewards are not things that earn salvation. They are things that are added to the believer who is faithful already inside the covenant. They already believe. So it would be good to have a good discussion on heavenly rewards, but now is not the time. But these rewards are things that come after salvation. So this is the point, though, in the sermon, though, that all of you get a little discouraged, though, right? Because you kind of know, like, mm, not real good, secret prayer. Jesus is calling us to thrive in private prayer. This seems to be a, a better measurement of our sanctification, of our maturity. And yet most of us can hardly pray three to five consecutive minutes a couple times a week in private. And even if we do pray, we often hurl up the same empty prayers, the same old prayers that Jesus warns about us, warns us about there in verse 7. We ask God, God, bless our family, bless my day, bless my family, bless, bless this person, bless that person, help me, amen, right? And at the same time, we struggle to pray prayers of adoration. God, you are great. We, pray, we struggle to pray prayers of thankfulness. And even if we do get some of those thankful prayers out, those prayers tend to be more just sort of thankfulness for circumstantial blessings that make our life easier. I've been reading a book in my personal devotions by Thomas Watson that's talking about thankfulness for affliction. 
Anybody done that in the last couple of weeks? Not me. We even quietly wonder, you know, what's the point of prayer? I mean, look at verse 8. He already knows what we need. Why even do it? Or maybe, you know, we haven't done it yet today, but you hear Joey will pray a little bit later, and you're going to think maybe, these prayers are really long. When's he going to stop praying? And we sort of think things like this. So prayer in a microwave, instant gratification society just doesn't seem to fit the mold. And yet the fact remains that we are commanded to pray. And in spite of all these questions and problems, I think all of us would like to pray more. Yet we don't. And the question is, why? Why do we have so much trouble thriving in our private prayer lives? And the answer to thriving in prayer life, I think, is right here in this passage. It's right here in front of us. Now, to be clear, there's no trick to it. There's no method that I can teach you that you're going to magically start praying a bunch more tomorrow morning. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to guilt you into praying. I've heard sermons like that. If I've already done that, forgive me. I don't want to do that. It's not my intention. Jesus is teaching us that we must pursue God for God. There's the secret. He's teaching us that we must pursue God for God. Jesus is separating the people who do religious stuff to get something out of it for themselves versus the people that pursue God for God. See, there's a difference in people that pray and those that don't really pray, right? He's drawing a line in the sand between those that are into the faith for what personal benefits they can get out of it in the here and now versus those that are into it for God Himself. Why else? Would he promise rewards for those that seek God in secret? And so Restoration Church, it could be said that in many ways the possibility of prayer with God is the whole purpose of the gospel. Now that's a big statement. I better back that up. Right? The possibility of prayer with God is the whole point of the gospel. Take a look there, verse 7. Jesus says to not be like the Gentiles that think access to the throne room of God can be bought with some empty phrases. And in the next verse, verse 8, he says that your father knows what you need even before you ask. Now, why? Why does he say that, Jesus? Why does he say that in verse 8? What's the connection between the warning of verse 7 and the truth of verse 8? What's the connection? And what will that tell us about excelling in our private prayer lives? Well, friends, the connection between verse 7 and verse 8 is the gospel. Verse 7 says that you, it tells us that you cannot do something to earn your way into being heard. Did you catch that? You can't say enough things and say just the right things in order to be heard by God. You can't say enough prayers, light enough candles, confess enough sins to earn your way into the throne room of God. If you could, then Christianity would ultimately be about you and your accomplishments, your ability to kind of earn your way into the throne room of God. It kind of removes the need for grace. This then sets up the context to what Jesus says in verse 8. See, what Jesus is saying in verse 8 is that the privilege of prayer is not being able to tell God what you need. He already knows that. He's already aware of that. The privilege of prayer is having access to God in all of His splendor. That's the privilege of prayer. That's what I mean when I said that the 
that, that it could be said that the possibility of prayer with God is the whole purpose of the gospel. See, God wants you to come to him for him. He does not want you to come to him for what you need or merely what he can do for you. Like give you the praise of man. This is the reason why he sent his son. This is the reason why he sent his son. So that you, friend, could have access to God in prayer through his son. Not through empty phrases or religious activity. God sent his son so that you could have access to him through his son. Now, you heard Joey talk about this a couple weeks ago from Hebrews, Hebrews 4. But I'm going to give you another passage. Take a look at Hebrews 10, verse 19. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, brothers, this is right into Christians, since we have confidence, by the way, just, there's, there's what? One, two, three, four, five, six. There's six words to meditate on this week. I was doing that this morning, like, Can you believe that's true? Since we have confidence to go in. That's amazing, by the way. That's amazing. Priests, in the old days, priests would be able to do that once a year with fear and trepidation. We have confidence. How? How do we have confidence? To enter the holy places. Well, by the blood of who? Y'all say it with me. Jesus, right? By the new and living way, he opened, not we opened, he opened for us through the curtain. Here's an image. That is through his flesh. I like to think of the curtain sort of like, well, it's maybe a little too graphic. Anyway, through his flesh. Through his flesh. And since we have a great priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, since it's already done, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. Not part assurance, not some assurance. Full assurance of faith because our faith is based on Him, not on us. So we have faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see what he's saying here? Since Christ has washed us clean of our sins, we can draw near to God. And how do we do that now? Prayer. Most fundamentally by prayer. So you see what I mean when I say that the possibility of prayer with God was a reason for the gospel. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man who lived a sinless life. He did no sin, lived the life that we should have lived. And yet, though he was innocent, he went to the cross to pay for the punishment of our sins. He died. And guess what, by the way, guys, something that we tend to not think much about. He rose rose from the grave, new life, overcoming sin and death. And those that repent of sin and trust in him, his robes of righteousness, Jesus' robes of righteousness are given to us so that when we walk into the throne room of God, the sort of, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of making this up, the sort of angels are like, whoa, whoa, before you go in there, and we flip out our Jesus robes, right? Well, you've got the robes of Christ's righteousness. Come on in. You tell me what kind of God is like that. What does that say of God? That He would give His only Son for sinners that we might just be with Him. Talk to Him. See, it tells us that God really does know what we need before we ask Him. That's what it tells us. It tells us that He's willing to give us access. I love this quote 
I think it's from Tim Keller. Can you imagine waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and going and knocking on the door of some great king today? What are you doing? Get out of here. And yet that's the kind of access we have with God. This is a great God. We learn that God is great, that God is generous. God is powerful. God is good. We learn that he loves us, which sets the context for what comes next in the model prayer. This prayer that so many of us know. Verse 9. I'm just going to walk right through this briefly. Look at verse 9. Our Father. Amazing two words right there, by the way. Our Father. The Father that knows what we need before we ask Him. The Father that gave us His only Son. Hallow Your name, God. So you can't see it in the English, but what's going on there is Jesus is saying, that's a plea. He's making a request. Our Father who art in heaven, hallow Your name. God, make Your name great. Make it great, God. Lift it up. Hallow it all over the earth. Jesus is requesting that God's name would be hallowed. And why would we not want that with a salvation so great? We go to God in secret and we pray that his name would be hallowed because he is what we want. He's what we want because he has given us what we need in his son. We're not praying for the praise of ourselves. We Pray because we want His name to be hallowed. Not our name to be hallowed. His name to be hallowed. We don't need our names to be revered when there is a God who longs to be with us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, bring heaven to earth, God, and bring it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so I don't have all these troubles, but most importantly, so that your name would be lifted up everywhere. And only after doing this does the prayer then move into our needs. So notice it starts with adoration. Verse 11, give us our daily bread. Right, he's, just give, me, just give me enough to eat, God. Just give me enough. Just, just daily bread. I don't need an abundance of bread. I don't, I don't need you know, jets and houses and trips and vacations and fancy clothes or hair. We don't need all those kinds. Right? Just give me God. Just give me enough. That, just give me what I need for today. Give me what I need for today. Because if I get that, God, I'll return that to you to hallow your name. Forgive us our debts. This, of course, is in reference to sin. Forgive us, God, for the ways we have not hallowed your name. That's what that's saying. And since you have forgiven others, God, since you have forgiven me, then help me to do that. Help me to hallow your name by forgiving others in the same way you forgave me. And by doing this, I'm going to hallow your name. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, keep us and deliver us from the temptation of not hallowing your great name. Keep us from that temptation. And then we get that insertion there in verses 14 to 15 where it's talking about if we don't forgive in the same way we have been forgiven, then God will not forgive your sin. This is not a condition to forgiveness. Instead, it's meant to be the revelation of a person that understands the gospel. Grace was given. Grace must be extended. If it's not, then you don't understand grace. So, what did we learn in all this? And this prayer, what did we learn? Well, we've learned that to go to God in secret and pray is to reveal that you understand the gospel. 
It means that you understand the aim of the gospel. Understand that God is the greatest treasure of all. Or maybe to say it negatively, to not go to God in secret and pray is to reveal that you are not that interested in the aim of the Christian faith. Namely, to treasure God. Our private prayer lives are mirrors that reflect back to us at the deepest level how much we actually understand and have been changed by the gospel. To the degree that we thrive in our private prayer lives is the degree to which we can treasure, which is the degree to which we are being revealed how much we treasure the goal of the, the gospel, namely access into the throne room of God. I want you to notice when Jesus comes out of this little part of the sermon, Sort of six down to, uh, what's that, verse 18. He's kind of got those three sections, right? Giving to the needy, the Lord's prayer, fasting. Look what he's, he's got this little section about external righteousness. What's the first thing he says when he comes out of that little part of the sermon? Look at verse, look at verse 19. What's the first thing he says? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 21. This is a, there's a hard verse, right? For where your treasure is, there your heart shall be also. He's helping us understand prayer is about treasuring. In other words, the reason why we probably struggle to pray is because we're too tied to our own glory, tied to our own satisfaction, tied to our own praise. We treasure things on earth too much, and as a result, we struggle to pray. We struggle to pray because we struggle to pursue God for God. We struggle to love God for God because we're too busy loving God for just what He can do for us. Just look again at verse 8. How many of you at some point in your life ask the question, if God knows what we need before we ask, why pray? Bad question. That question diminishes God to a mere resource. A handyman that you can call on whenever you need something. By the way, let me be clear in this. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to God and request Him of things. You should. But if you ask that question, it illustrates that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the goal of the gospel. Guys, I don't come home to my, I don't go home to my wife every day just because of what she can do for me. Right? I go home to my wife every day because I want to be with my wife. I want to talk to my wife. She probably knows all the things that I need. I would love some, you know, I'd love a hamburger. She probably knows, she knows that. Right? So I don't go home to her for that. I, go, I want to be, be with my wife. That's why I go home. Because I love her. For her. Not just for what she could do for me. Same is true of God. He wants you to be willing to go into secret and pray because He wants you to want Him for Him. Not just for what He can do for you. This is what I mean when I say pursue God for God. Prayer is not a way to get things from God. It's a way to get more of God. Doesn't mean that prayer is not a vessel by which we have our uh, requests answered. But the goal of it is to pursue Him for Him, to gain more of Him. The more that we start to understand that, see the greatness of God in the Gospel, the more that we will want to be with Him in private prayer. If you pray when no one is looking, you reveal a true love for God. If you don't pray when no one is looking, you are in danger of misunderstanding the Gospel. And so again, here's what's happening for a lot of us right now. You're realizing your failure to pray or your lack of desire to pray is directly linked to your lack of desire to hallow God's name. Some of you are, that moment is setting in on you right now. So let me just give you uh, one or two brief 
applications, and then we'll pray. If that's you, if that describes you, if you're sensing right now a lack of desire to pray in private, and that is illustrating a lack of desire to be with God for God, and to treasure Him, to be with Him, and to know Him, to exalt Him, and to be thankful to Him. If you're sensing that there's this distance between this lack of private prayer and your public religiosity, here we go. First, just start by repenting. Turning from the sin of using God for your own whims and wishes. Repent from that sin. Repent of seeing God as just a resource. As just a good get-out-of-jail-free card so when I die, I go to the better of two choices. Repent of that sin. Turn away from it. And guess what? Guess what? Receive forgiveness. He's happy to forgive. You don't have to earn your way. You don't have to go like, well, let me, let me go on a fast for a couple weeks and then maybe he'll forgive me after that. No. No, 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 no. no. It's grace-based, remember? It's not by the words that you heap up. It's about Jesus. Receive His forgiveness. Turn from the sin of pursuing God so that you can get stuff full out of it. And ask Him to forgive you. And then, secondly, after you repent, receive the grace of forgiveness. And then thirdly, ask Him to increase your hunger and thirst for His righteousness. Ask Him day after day after day. Assault the throne. Day after day. I need more of you. More of you. Less of me. More of you. Your righteousness. Your righteousness. Your will. Not mine. Less of my praise. Less of me. More of you. Pray that day after day. Increase my taste buds to want more of you. Make sin, make self-sufficiency distasteful. Make you glorious. Make you like chocolate, God, right? Oranges. Love oranges, right? Apples. Make it. I want those things. Make my soul's taste buds like that, God. Please. Please. Not just once, not just twice. Just every day for the rest of your life. And you're going to find that He will do that. But I'm little, let me warn you on one thing. This oftentimes does not come quick. Right? Doesn't come quick. You know, I love the quote from Graham Fletcher, old elder of our church. He talked about, he was describing kind of marriage. And he said that we tend to think of marriage sort of like Kool-Aid. Just pour water on it. Poof! Doesn't work like that. Marriage, good marriages, true love, maybe a better way of saying it, is like a fine aged wine. I find the more that I pursue Christ, the older I get, the harder it can be, but the more content I am in Him. This takes time. God is not like Amazon.com where you can order some good taste buds and then in two days it shows up on your front door. Free shipping, right? So it is sort of free shipping by the Spirit. But nevertheless, it's free in the Gospel, but you get the idea. Keep going, Nathan. Shut up. All right. <laughs> takes time. takes time. So let me land the plane here by reminding you of the God that's worthy to be, to be pursued in prayer for Him. I'm just going to end right here because some of you are going like, is God like, worth being pursued for Him? Just take a look at this passage. I'm going to just make, just make observations, brief observations, and I'm going to pray. Look at verse 9. If you're a Christian, if you've repented and believed and trusted on Christ, look at verse 9. He is our Father. You need to spend some time seeing how awesome that is. He is our Father. The God of the universe. Yours. Ours. 
He's my dad. Verse 6. Look back up. This God that is ours, that loves us and for us, verse 6, He sees. You want to get a great story of uh, encouragement, go read the story of Hagar back in Genesis 16. The God that sees. You're wondering if He sees all the difficulty you're going through? Jesus says He does. He sees. And verse 6, also look, He rewards. I love giving good gifts to my sons. Right, boys? I give good gifts to you. How much more? Our Father in Heaven. He rewards. Verse 11. He can feed you. He can feed you. Verse 12. Man, we need this one, right? We need help to forgive. He gives us that. Help to forgive. Verse 13. He helps us fight. I mean, we could just do this the rest of the day, but he wants to meet with you, Christian. How do I know that? Because he loves you. How do I know he loves you? Because he sent his only son to get you. There ain't no better news than that. That's how we know. So pursue God for God in prayer. Know that he sees you, that he's your father, that he's willing to offer you grace for forgiveness and love and joy and peace and contentedness. And it takes time. And you'll watch as you do this, guys. You'll watch your fears, your anxieties dissipate as your contentedness grows, as you give yourself to Him in prayer. May we help each other this year in 2018 to pray, to pray and watch Him do great things for the hallowing of His name. And so let's pray now. Father, Thank you that you are so patient with us. Patient with our prayerless lives. Thankful so that you're so patient for our desire to make our own name hallowed. And so our prayer for this year and the life of this church, God, is that you, through us, would hallow your name. Most notably, may that come through our giving ourselves to prayer. May we see more people at 9.30 when there's no Titus 2 form. More people than... Yeah, just more people coming to pray together. May we hear more testimonies of people spending more time in private prayer closets because they understand that no matter how, book, how many books they read, how many how many good lectures they listen to, they can't do it. The Spirit has to awaken them to overcome that sin, to overcome that discontentedness. And so may they assault your throne room, knowing that they have access by the work of your Son, so that they can enjoy you and find joy in you. May that happen more and more in the life of this church. May more people get converted because we recognize their need uh, to be converted by the Spirit through the vessel of our prayers, that your name would be hallowed. And we pray trusting in you to do great things for the exaltation of your infinite glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.